This month, it marks the 91st, I know you had it on your calendar, anniversary of the day gangster Al Capone was indicted in one of the most notorious criminals and is really kind of associated with Chicago for good or bad, probably uh, for history. With us to talk about some little known facts about Al Capone and his legal issues is Jonathan Eig. He's the author of the great book, Get Capone. He's a journalist here in Chicago, a biographer, and the author of five books, um, three of which are bestsellers. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Karen. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Al Capone and his legal issues, since this is a legal show. Uh, Elliot Ness is usually given the credit for nabbing uh, Capone, but I think in your book you kind of take a different position. What, what, is the, what is your position from all of your research? Yeah, and this is the guy who we remember because of the TV shows and the movies, but he really had very little to do with putting Al Capone away. Uh, it was very hard to prove that Al Capone killed people. It was very hard to prove even that he sold liquor, um, that uh, he had he kept his hands pretty clean. So the government became very frustrated, especially after the Valentine's Day massacre, and they couldn't prove that he had anything to do with that either. So they decided, we just got to get him off the streets. We just, you know, they were tired of this guy embarrassing them. Uh, and the city of Chicago wasn't going to do anything about it because Capone bribed everybody in town. Uh, I know you'll be shocked to hear that that kind oh, of so thing shocked. happened. <laughs> and luckily, it doesn't happen anymore. Um, but um, they finally decided the only way or the best way that they could get him out of that operation quickly, get him off the streets, um, was to make a tax case against him. So it's really the tax uh, attorneys, the accountants, the guys uh, and, and, and the U.S. attorney who led the investigation, George E.Q. Johnson, who deserve most of the credit. And uh, to this day, their families are still kind of peeved that Elliot Ness gets all the credit. Oh, that's interesting. So when you put they were putting together this case, they're, they're looking at what his lifestyle and, and his expenditures and kind of the idea that if he's only reporting X amount of dollars and he's spending Y amount of dollars, there's just no way that that adds up. Right. Well, first of all, Capone did not file income tax returns. And you and I probably wouldn't either if we were engaged in illegal business, right? So, um, you know, they so they went to him and they said, Al, you, you never filed income tax returns. Uh, we're investigating you. So he, he met, he actually went to D.C., met with the IRS officials and said, okay, I'll, I'll pay. Tell me, let, let's make a deal. Let's calculate how much I owe. And he, he offered an estimate of his income and offered to pay taxes on it. And they said, no, we're going to keep looking into this. So they started building a case against him, and um, and in fact, they used his his uh, estimated income during those negotiations as evidence against him. And they still couldn't prove that he had income because his, it was a cash operation. He didn't put his name in the books. Um, he was, you know, very smart about not leaving a paper trail. Um, eventually, they had to build the case around circumstantial evidence that they they showed that he spent a lot of money, so he must have made a lot of money. And they just, you know, they went into court and they talked about his dry cleaning bills and his home de- decorating bills and his cars and his houses and how much all this stuff costs. And they asked the jury to, to uh, just use logic and say, if he's spending all this money, he must have been making money and he didn't pay any taxes. Let's put him away. Interesting that that doesn't sound like a laydown. That sounds like a little complicated. It was complicated. And uh, to be honest, um, if Capone had better lawyers, he might have had a chance of beating the case. But Capone made a mistake. He he hired the lawyers who he knew uh, who had worked with him before on his on his criminal charges. You know, when he got arrested on suspicion of murder um, or suspicion of bootlegging, he had a bunch of guys that he knew well that had served him well that had kept him out of jail for you know a dozen or so years. 
and he turned to them to handle his tax case. And he should have hired tax experts. He should have hired somebody who knew how to deal with the IRS. Um, and, and he really, um, that was in, in some ways, of all the mistakes Capone made, uh, he made plenty of them. Um, that was the one that he paid for the most. Well, and that's a moral of the story that I talk about all the time on the radio show, which is you got to get the right lawyer. And in a city like Chicago, and, and of course, it's 91 years later, uh, you have so many lawyers who concentrate their practice in just one thing. And, you know, in smaller towns, that's not the case. But, you know, we have tons of really good tax lawyers. And the person who represents you in a murder case is a very different creature than a person who represents you in a paper crime. You know, not to say that some lawyers can't do both, uh, but uh, that, that's very very, very interesting. So, yeah, and if you look at the case, if you look at the trial transcripts, you can see how many mistakes they made. They, they really blew it. Interesting. Uh, and let's just talk uh, before we go to break. Uh, he goes to Alcatraz. He gets sentenced. Um, how many years did he get sentenced to? Income tax evasion, right? That's that's what he's convicted of. Yeah. He gets, he gets 13 years in federal prison for that. No one has ever gone to prison for income tax evasion for anywhere near that length of time. That's they, they, that's they, kind they, of a Blagojevich sentence. <laughs> yeah, you can tell they were trying to send a message here. They were. This is not because uh, his brother w- went away before him for income tax evasion and only got a couple of years, which is pretty much the norm if if you get do any time at all for income tax evasion. But 13 years at Alcatraz? Come on. <laughs> now I don't know if any of you. I'm sure John, you've been to Alcatraz, right? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have to tell course. you, it, it is a great tour. You go to San Francisco and take the little ferry over there. And it's just, it's a fascinating tour. And the idea that you're even there for a couple hours makes you just think, how could you do time here? It's cold. It's damp. Uh, this, the, the conditions are horrendous. How, from your research, how did Al Capone fare in prison? And how did he spend his time? Well, it's really interesting. First of all, why spend why send a tax evasion a guy to, to Alcatraz? It, because the prison was brand new, and they wanted to get a lot of publicity for how tough it was to try to deter crime. So they sent the most famous gangster in the world there. Um, and Al Capone, by the time he got there, had already been diagnosed with tertiary syphilis, so his mind was kind of starting to rot away already. Um, he was really losing control of his bodily functions to some extent, and his mind. And um, you know, he. Um, he managed to, to uh, learn some uh, to, to play the mandola while he was in prison. Oh. He learned to transcribe music. He wrote these sweet letters home to his mother and to his wife, apologizing for all the trouble he caused them. So um, it was interesting. He never, you know, he was not a bad prisoner. Interesting. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, we're talking to Jonathan Eig. He's a very prominent uh, Chicago author, and he has written numerous books. Uh, Muhammad Ali, A Life, which is what we're going to talk about next. It was made into a documentary produced by Ken Burns, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about Muhammad Ali's legal issues. Um, you're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. We're talking to Jonathan Eig, the famous, world-famous, Chicago-based author, and he is the author of his most recent book is uh, Muhammad Ali, A Life, a Biography of the Great Muhammad Ali. Uh, Jonathan, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your book, and it was made into a documentary by Ken Burns. How was it to work with him? It must have been a real pleasure. Oh, my God, he's the best. Uh, it's like working with Muhammad Ali, you know, the best in the business. Right. And um, he did, you know, an eight-hour, four-part documentary, and um, it was, you know, seven years of work. Then I got to see him, uh, you know, uh, how he trains, how he re- operates in the ring. It was really great. I learned a lot about telling stories about 
uh, I learned a lot just from being around Ken and his whole team. And let's talk, uh, since this is a legal show, we're going to take a, there's probably a million things to talk about. I really like his, the whole part about um, Louisville. I was just in Louisville myself, and, and you know, he's, there's the, a lot of tributes to him there. But he came from a, you know, very segregated uh, town, and, and he had some supporters from from uh, different walks of life. Um, but, but I do want to talk about the issue of his conscientious objector. And I know we've heard this story, and can you just tell the listeners who maybe don't know about this, a little bit about it, maybe some things that you learned that were not known before. Yeah, it was really interesting. You know, um, when Ali joined the Nation of Islam, um, he was soon after that drafted. Um, and at first, when he tested for, took the test, he, he failed the IQ test, so he wasn't eligible for the military. And then when they needed more soldiers to call up for Vietnam, they lowered the, uh, the, the number, the IQ test, and Ali was suddenly eligible. And he says, wait a second, I'm not any smarter than I was before. Why do they want me? Um, and uh, he, he began by saying he didn't want to fight, um, that he was better off you know, fighting and making money. The government could tax him and buy tanks with all of his tax money. So he didn't exactly sound like a conscientious objector. Then he started saying, well, you know, why would I want to go over there and fight? a bunch of dark-skinned people when my country doesn't even treat its own dark-skinned people very well. Why do they want to send me over there to kill more brown-skinned people? I got nothing against those Viet Cong. So, so he's still not exactly sounding like a conscientious objector. And then, you know, he sort of evolves and begins saying, well, my religion says that I don't, we don't fight in secular wars. We only fight in you know, the wars of the apocalypse. And um, that's when that's where he drew the line and 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 we talked about al capone earlier and what a bad job he did of hiring lawyers well um young muhammad ali did a good job of hiring lawyers and he got chauncey eskridge of chicago to represent him chauncey eskridge also represented martin luther king jr and um chauncey eskridge and and some other lawyers began making the case that um that the nation of islam was a legitimate religion and that um islam was a religion um, even though um, it, it was only, you know, sort of um, tangentially connected uh, to the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam um, was modeled after traditional Islam, but it was not the same thing. Um, but they still made the case that, that Ali's religious beliefs were, were genuine. He, he sincerely believed that he, he was not permitted by his religion to fight. And that's the case they took to the Supreme Court. Um, Ali was banned from boxing for three and a half years while he um while he fought this case he was he was convicted of draft evasion sentenced to to prison and while that case was on appeal um he was his boxing license was stripped his passport was taken away and he had to uh look for other ways to make a living while the case made its way through the courts and the the resounding um ruling was was a unanimous opinion if i'm not mistaken that he was he was right yeah, but it was a close call, actually. You know, that's one of the things I learned. Um, it was very interesting. The Supreme Court was prepared to, to um, affirm the lower court's ruling that, that Ali was guilty oh. and send him to jail. They, the Supreme Court had, had taken a, um, a tentative vote, and they were prepared. They weren't going to even rule on it. They were just going to um, decline to take the case from the lower court that had ruled against Ali. But they were worried about the PR. They were worried about how it would look to send this famous black man to prison without even giving him a hearing. What? The Supreme so, Court political? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Wait, Shocking, right? I'm you grabbing mean, my pearls <laughs> right now. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> even before our current uh, court, uh, these things happened. And they decided to look at the case again and to, to give it a little more time. And while they were doing that, one of the 
um, just, one of the clerks for Justice Harlan um, actually read Elijah Muhammad's book, A Message to the Black Man, and made the case to, to Justice Harlan that, that really there was no difference between the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Nation of Islam, and that if one was granted a conscientious objective status, why shouldn't the other? And Justice Harlan managed to convince the other justices that this was right, and but they still didn't want to rule in that way because they didn't want to set a precedent that all members of the Nation of Islam were exempt from military service. So they found a little technicality. They found a little mistake that one of the, the earlier courts had made, and they threw the case out on this technicality. Wow. So lots of politics going on here, lots of um, backroom drama. Very interesting. Uh, non-related, and I don't want to spend much time on it, I just I just thought he was so funny. Some of his quotes, if you Google uh, Muhammad Ali quotes, I mean, so funny. The, my favorite was he said, Frazier is so ugly that when he cries, the tears turn around and go down the back of his head. I love it. <laughs> I just have to know, do you have any idea as to whether or not he came up with those himself, or did he have like a, a writer, a speechwriter? Well, he was very good at appropriating the works of others. Um, <laughs> he, he, he borrowed a lot from Dick Gregory, who was you know a friend right. and, and a legendary comedian. But a lot of them were just Ali. And, and his buddy, um, Boudini Brown, you know, came up with a few. But Ali was very funny and very fun to be around and, and just had an unbelievably sharp wit. Um, so and, and when, he, when he failed the IQ test, for example, he said, I, I, I only said I was the greatest. I didn't say I was the smartest. <laughs> That's funny. You know what? We ran completely out of time. Uh, I, I do want to talk to you and maybe we'll do, we'll do this uh, sooner rather than later. Birth of the Pill was one of your uh, other books that talked about the development of, of the contraceptive pill. And uh, with the Roe versus Wade impending, um, probably a reversal, I want to talk to you about how, how your research played into that. But we are out of time. Jonathan, I, I highly recommend <laughs> And everyone buy his book get capone or ali a life uh, all excellent excellent books thank you so much jonathan thanks ken